Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 20. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 647. We'll be working our way through the entire chapter this morning, but we're just going to start by reading the first six verses. Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Beloved saints, this is the word of God that does not return void. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hands of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried and you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. And as the reading of God's word at this time, let us ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. O God, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours, and so are your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We're here this morning because we want to know you, we want to know your truth, we want to know your ways. Teach them to us. Guide us in them. Teach us to know and to seek after your truth with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our strength. Do this this morning, even as we draw near in your word, we pray. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. Well, it happened to Peter... It happened to Job, and it happened to Moses, it happened to David, it happened to Jeremiah, and it will happen to you. Your faith will fail. It will be tested, it will be tried, it will be stretched, and sometimes it will fail. And what happens next is really what matters. Will you despair Convince yourself that you can't truly be a child of God and give up? Or will you cling to Jesus no matter what? Will you only cling to him when you feel lovable? Or especially when you feel unlovable? That's really what divides people. Not those who fail and those who succeed, not those who are good and those who are bad. It's those who hope in, those who cling to Jesus 
and those who hope to and cling to other things. My hope this morning as we open up uh, this beautiful chapter in the book of Jeremiah is really just to drive home one point, and it's this. Your hope is not in how strong your faith is, but in how great your Savior is. Your hope is not in the strength of your faith, but in the strength of your Savior. Now, if you don't know what happened in chapter 19, chapter 20 is not going to make much sense. And since I didn't preach on chapter 19, maybe I should kind of rehearse it a little bit. Uh, A few weeks ago before Christmas, we left off with chapter 18. And you'll remember that beautiful image of Jeremiah going to the potter's house. God said he wanted uh, Jeremiah to see something. Uh, There was that spoiled lump of clay on the potter's wheel. And Jeremiah looked on as the potter reworked that spoiled lump into something beautiful. And God wanted Jeremiah to see that that's what he does when we fail. That's what God's grace looks like. That's what God's grace does. Because we're all spoiled lumps of clay that need reworking, reshaping. And God is willing to show mercy to those who repent and turn to him. That was chapter 18. Chapter 19 uses a similar image but has a very different message. Uh, God tells Jeremiah to invite all uh, the elders uh, of Judah out to the local uh, dump, the trash heap, and to take, as he goes, a flask from the potter's house. And there Jeremiah is to smash this flask on the dump heap before everyone and declare that this is what God is going to do with the people of Israel for their constant rebellion and unwillingness to repent and change course. A little bit different than chapter 18. God's announcing through Jeremiah that the time to repent has come and gone and that judgment is coming. It's not the kind of sermon that makes you popular. (laughs) It's the unforgivable sermon, really. Uh, And so what do you do If you're a leader in Israel and Jeremiah, this troublemaker, starts preaching sermons like this, what happens if people start listening? What happens if if Jeremiah gains a following? That's going to rock the boat. That could threaten everything. And if you're a leader in power, that's unacceptable. So Pashur, that's how I'm going to pronounce his name because I have no idea how it was really pronounced. Uh, Pashur is uh, the chief priest, the chief leader of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. His job is to provide guidance to the the people uh, um, around, including the leaders. he's, He's the leader's leader. He's one of the most powerful men in Israel. Sort of the consummate leader. People naturally follow him. If we were there, we might say he looks presidential, distinguished. The kind of person who instills confidence when he talks that people want to believe. And yet here's the reality, here's the thing. That means he is at least in part responsible for the current Reality, the current state of affairs in Israel. He's one of those voices 
that keeps saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Saying everything's fine when God is saying repent. So on the outside, he appears to be this deeply religious man. But the reality on the inside is quite different. There's no love of God in his heart. He uses religious language, but he tells people what they want to hear in order to gain and maintain power. He's been telling people that all is well when it's not. He's told them what they want to hear, and they've rewarded him with power and prestige and wealth. And so now Pashur has a dilemma. Jeremiah is threatening the status quo. And if he is successful in waking the consciences, if he's successful in waking the people from their stupor, Pashur could lose everything. Because he's completely invested in misleading the people. So what's he going to do? Is he going to let Jeremiah continue to make trouble or do something about it? And if so, what? Because you see, people love a martyr. And if he simply beats Jeremiah, it could backfire and make him more popular, garner him more sympathy. And so Pashur has to be careful. It's not enough to punish Jeremiah. Pashur must discredit, he must undermine him. So what's the solution? It's to humiliate Jeremiah. Pashur, as with most false teachers, is an incredible student of human nature, and he knows that mockery is more powerful than logic. He's a manipulator, and he knows that facts don't win the day. So he's going to play with emotions, play with perception. And he seeks to use his knowledge to neutralize Jeremiah in the public opinion. But how? What does he do? Well, first, he beats Jeremiah. But then he puts him in the stocks. He puts him on public display so as to make him a laughingstock, the object of ridicule to all who walk by. Who could listen to someone so pathetic? He tries to make Jeremiah irrelevant by getting everyone to laugh at him. This is how it is with people who have no regard for fair play. You've all been, I'm sure, part of or witnessed a debate where somebody starts their speech like this. I don't want to make Bill cry, so I'll keep this short. It doesn't matter what he says next, because what's the real issue? It's that Bill's a crybaby. Whatever Bill says is unimportant. People like this don't play with honor. It's impossible to beat them. With cheats, you can't win. So what does Jeremiah do? Well, from the next next few verses, it appears that he doesn't miss a beat. Undeterred, his public response is one of resolute faith. He takes up his preaching ministry the second he gets out of the stocks, as if he's never been there, And he declares that the Lord has given Pashur a new name, easier to pronounce, terror on every side. He's pulling back the curtain. 
and declaring Pashur to be what he is, someone who brings death, not life, to the people. Pashur is a danger. He's a terror to everyone around him. Leaders who only preach what people want to hear make those people feel good, but they lead them straight to hell. People need to know when something is dangerous. Natural gas doesn't have an odor. So the gas company puts an odor in it before they send it to your house so that if there's a gas leak, you know before it turns deadly. That's what good preaching does. It warns of danger before it's too late, before it's deadly. False teachers do the opposite. They take poison and they make it taste good so that people eat death thinking they're getting a treat. Jeremiah is the herald of truth. And so what he says takes courage. It's it's unpopular and we applaud his courage. We even envy it, wondering if we were in his shoes, if we could do the same thing. Jeremiah's our guy, we think. But looks can be deceiving. Let's read verses 7 through 10 and 14 through 18. Pick it up in verse 7. Jeremiah says this, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become a reproach and a derision all the day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering tears on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. And now if you will, just drop down with me to verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning, an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have not uh, so my mother would have been my grave and her womb uh, forever great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Pasteur is not the only one who acts one way in public and another way in private. After this amazing public sermon by Jeremiah, after he's released from the stocks, we see his private response to God. In verses 7 through 10, Jeremiah once again accuses God of misleading him, of deceit, of lying. Most likely, he's thinking about the sermon he preached in chapter 19 at the time uh, that the time for judgment has come. He's thinking, now, finally, no more punishment, no more suffering on my part. It's all going to be the people. If that's the case, how did Jeremiah end up in the stocks, publicly humiliated on display for all? He thinks that 
God's promise of judgment should have meant that he wouldn't suffer anymore. So Jeremiah is angry. There's nothing like humiliation to get an emotional response. I can do endure a lot more physical pain than I can mockery. It's not something I'm proud of, but it's reality. I would rather be beat in in private than mocked in public. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Poke someone's body and he might be able to endure. Poke his pride? Our pride is so strong. We hate being undervalued, slighted, ignored, misquoted, mocked, or just simply taken for granted. Once again, Jeremiah is a lot like us. The humiliation inflicted on him didn't just affect public opinion, it affected Jeremiah. He would have preferred to be beaten more severely or maybe even killed. And initially his anger is directed at Pashur, but anger can only be pointed at our fellow man for so long. Eventually it must be pointed at God. Because eventually we have to accept that God has allowed whatever has come to pass, whatever that affliction is that's bothering us, whether it's war or abuse, embezzlement, cheating, disease, loss, death. We want to blame man, and and rightly so. We are the authors of the evil and suffering in our worlds. But eventually we also have to recognize, come to grips with the fact, that God could have prevented whatever the affliction is that comes into our life, and he chose not to. God could have kept Jeremiah out of those stocks. He could have brought uh, quick and decisive judgment after that sermon. But he allowed Jeremiah to be ridiculed and mocked and laughed at. And Jeremiah's had enough. In verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah even says he doesn't like God's word. And he's determined many times not to preach it, but something within compels him. And he goes, I know it's you, God. I tried not to preach it. And you wouldn't let me. God would not let Jeremiah's soul find rest until he preached. So in verses 14 through 18, he begs for death. He curses the day he was born. He, he mocks those who rejoiced at his birth. And, and in some ways that might sound humble, but it's anything but humility. He's saying that death is preferable to what God has ordained for him. Escaping God's calling is more important, so important, that he would take death over submission. This is where you're driven when you fight with God. Because when it comes to God, you can't win. You are not more powerful than he is. You'll never conquer him. He can't be beat. You can't fight with him and win. Fighting with God is is fighting with reality. It's like trying to, 
to wage war against gravity or, or time. He'll only end up frustrated and in despair. And death will eventually become more preferable. I think one of the hardest parts of this passage is not how much ridicule Jeremiah suffers, but that when all is said and done, how similar he is to Pashur. They're both religious leaders. They both act one way in public and another way in private. They're both controlled by their pride. They both try to rule over God and tell him what he may or may not do. They both have their fair share of hypocrisy. And that's the hardest part of this passage. Well, almost the hardest part. I think there's one thing harder. It's how much I recognize myself in both of them. When I look back at my faith, I see more hypocrisy than integrity. I try to rule God more than I submit to him. I fail more than I succeed. And my, far, my pride is far more obvious than my humility. Perhaps you recognize yourself as well. Perhaps you are troubled with your own lack of faith, your own failures. And you wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I really love God at all? Do I really belong to him? Is my faith sufficient to save me? The hardest question to answer sometimes is, do we truly believe what we proclaim to others? Do we really believe that God has the right to do as he sees best? Will we submit to him even if we don't like what he's doing? Can we tell ourselves the same things we tell others? Our faith is always tested in tragedy. For some, it's going to war. For others, it's violence and abuse in the home. For some, it might be seen starvation and poverty that defines so much of our world. It could be grief and loss. It might be when you stare at disease ravishing the body of the one you love most in this world. Or it may simply be when you suffer ridicule for being a follower of Jesus. We're all tested in our faith. And here's the dirty secret of Christians. Failure is more common than success. It's easier to proclaim the truth to others than it is to believe it yourself. Pride is harder to fight than a foreign army. And when we focus on our failures, when this becomes our focus, when we seek comfort in our track record, that's when we struggle to maintain hope. But I don't think that's the point of this passage and in seeing similarities between Pasture and Jeremiah and us. 
Because the ultimate, ultimate division in this world isn't between those who fail and those who succeed, between those who are good and those who are bad. It's between those who hope in and cling to Jesus and those who hope in and cling to something else. What our passage drives home is that we are all sinners. We are all a mess. We all need a Savior. That's what God wants you to see when hypocrisy rears its ugly head in your life. That's what you need to take away from your failures. Not your worth, but your need. That you need someone who's not like you, or Jeremiah, or Peter, or David, or Moses, or, or, or. You need someone who on the inside is exactly what he is on the outside. One who was not a slave to pride. You need one who who could be betrayed by a chief priest and not lose his temper. You need one who could be publicly ridiculed and shamed and yet submit without comment. You need one who could pray, not my will be done. You need one who could at his darkest moment not respond in anger to his heavenly father, but sweetly say, into your hands do I commit my spirit. That's exactly what we find in Jesus You remember when the Lord appeared in Genesis and wrestled with uh, with Jacob through the night? What was Jacob? (laughs) Jacob was a mess. He was a liar, a cheat, a slave to pride. He was constantly trying to control his destiny rather than trust God. But he at least understood one simple thing that no matter how bad things got, he could not let go of his Savior. My guess is on that night, he never felt less lovable. But isn't that precisely when we need God the most? And so he hung on. He clung to him. He refused to let go. Jacob learned the all-important lesson And when you fight with cheats, you can't win. When you fight with God, you can't win. But when you cling to God, you can't lose. Ultimately, that's what Jeremiah understood as well. Because even in the midst of his frustration, his anger, his pride, there's one thing that distinguished him from Pashur. And it wasn't how holy he was. It wasn't how lovable he felt. It wasn't even in the midst of his failures that he didn't respond in anger. It was that in the midst of his failures, he refused to let go of God. So I want to read those last three verses in our passage, verses 11 through 13. Because here's what Jeremiah confesses in the darkest hour. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. 
for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. He confesses, the Lord is with me. I won't let go. I'm going to cling to him. Because with God, I can't lose. Not ultimately. So he commits his cause, verse 12, to the Lord. And even though his deliverance hasn't yet come, he finds a voice to praise the Lord. That's the comfort of clinging to Jesus. Our passage is made visible for us this morning in two ways. And the first is baptism. Baptism makes visible the reality that we all fail, that we all deserve death. It's, it's a picture of death. In fact, Jesus called his death on the cross a baptism. What's really interesting is that he was not up there alone. He was accompanied by two thieves, scoundrels, hypocrites, sinners. And they had two very different responses. One's response was to mock Jesus, to ridicule him. And do you remember the response of the other? He rebuked the first and he said, you and I, we both deserve to be here. There's no difference between you and me when it comes to righteousness and value and worth in that sense. But this man, this man is different. He is truly innocent. And then turning to Jesus, he simply said, please, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. He clung to Jesus at his darkest hour. This is what baptism teaches us. We are like those thieves on the cross deserving God's judgment. What distinguishes us is whether we turn to Jesus and mock him or say, please, remember me. Well, please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious God, you know us. You know our hearts. You know us in public and you know us in private. You know that we are not what we claim to be, what we wish we were. But you know us as your own. You call us your children, your prized possession. Our hope is not in how good we are, how different we are from everyone else, but that in that we are yours. Help us to cling to you when our worlds don't make sense, to hold on even when we are angry, and to know that there is no hope anywhere else. Be patient with us and make us more like Jesus, who endured public ridicule in order to save us. May his name be praised. Amen.